Pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we dive into Judges chapter 18. Our gracious God and Father, we, we ask you today to send the power of your Spirit upon us that we can understand your Word. Father, we, we confess that these, these particular pages of Scripture are dark to us, are sometimes difficult for us to comprehend how it is that you want to, how, how you want us to apply these things. What, what is the lesson that you want us to learn? Will you grant to us the insight that only your Spirit can provide from your Word? Will you grant to us a conviction of sin? Will you give to us the gift of seeing the all-sufficiency of Christ our Savior to ransom us, to redeem us, to cleanse us from all remaining sin? We, we praise you for his work, for the promise that he has made, that he has sealed with his own blood. We thank you for the power of your spirit at work within us, preserving us and keeping us who belong to him. And we pray today for the power of your spirit to be brought to bear upon hearts and minds remaining in bondage to sin, under the hardness of their own rebellion against you. We pray that by your spirit's power, the veil would be lifted and they would see the weakness and need for Christ as Redeemer and King. We ask this for Christ's namesake. Amen. You take your seat. Would you turn with me to Judges chapter 18? This is part two of, of a sermon that I entitled last week, The Anarchy of Self-Derived Religion. And I made a couple of introductory remarks last week that I want to briefly repeat. This this Beginning in chapter 17 of the book of Judges, we began a new section. Uh, from chapters 3 through 16, we had the Judges proper, you might say. We had Samson and Othniel and Jephthah and Shemgar and all the rest. But here, beginning in chapter 17, we began a new section, and it is not to be understood strictly chronologically. In other words, chapters 17 and 18 don't flow chronologically after chapter 16 with Samson. In fact, it's important for us to recognize that the events that take place in 17 and 18 with respect to the tribe of Dan take place probably very early in the narrative of the book of Judges. You may recall, you have to go back in your memory banks uh, several months back when we started the book of Judges, that we're, we're looking at a, at a time scale here of probably some three to three and a half centuries, 300 to 350 years time period. The events in 17 and 18 would, I think, I'm convinced, are very early in that period of time. And it sort of peels back the veil. We've seen what's going on at the national level. We've seen what's going on with all the judges and all the, the depravity and all the problems and all the difficulties there. We found some very colorful characters like Samson. But the lens sort of shifts, as it were. If this were a movie of sorts, you would see the camera angle change. Or if you were watching a stage play, you would see the curtain come down, and open back up, and it would be a new setting. And here, the setting is what's happening in the ordinary homes of ordinary Israelites. And by focusing particularly here in this section, 17 and 18, and then again in chapters 20 to 20, 19, 20, and 21, we focus on the tribes of Dan and Benjamin, which geographically are right in the heart of Israel. And that's, that's significant because it, it's also a metaphor. 
it shows that the problems that we see here go to the very heart of Israel. This is not some marginal fringe problem. We're dealing with rampant idolatry and false worship that pervades all of Israel. That's why we see the narrator and judges repeat this phrase, there was no king in Israel, so every man did what was right in his own eyes. Not just those who were in leadership, not just those in the civil sphere, but those, all people in every place. That sort of sets the stage. But here's something else that's unique about chapter 18. Have you ever played this sort of, of, of game with someone and said, you know, kind of this where were you when kind of thing? Where were you? I remember my grandfather talking about he remembered where he was when the reports of the bombing of Pearl Harbor came in. He was 19 years old shortly after enlisted, and was sent to foreign shores. Changed everything. Many of you may remember, I was not yet alive, but some of you may remember the news of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I remember, of course, the, the planes flying into the towers. Most of you remember exactly where you were when that happened. Something that changed pivotally. Or space shuttle explosion, both of them, in 1986 and again in 2003. I can remember exactly where I was when the news came. Some of those, are we remember things that maybe are inconsequential to other people that didn't shape history, but it changed us. You remember what happened when you met your spouse. You remember when, where you were when you got the news that your first child was on the way or other things that, that change the shape of your own personal life. My bride can tell you ex- the exact circumstances of her first hearing about this strange virus in a place called Wuhan, China. The funny story, I'll let her tell you that. Well, I'm persuaded that chapter 18 has such a one kind of monumental first, and it's not a good one. We observed last week in chapter 17 that self-derived worship began at the individual household level. We saw that when Micah hires this young Levitical priest for his own household gods. But chapter 18, I believe, gives to us an account of the very first time that idolatry and false worship is formally institutionalized in the promised land. This is the moment when idolatry and false worship is formally institutionalized in the nation of Israel. And the effects are far-reaching. The last verse, as we're going to read in a moment in chapter 18, is foreboding. The idolatry that was established by the tribe of Dan continued until the exile. So as you read through the books of the Chronicles and the kings, and you're going to see things, even the good kings are commended for their faithfulness, but what does it say? They did not remove the high place. All that began right here in chapter 18. So it's a pivotal time in the history of Israel, and our narrator is careful for us to understand, ultimately, this is not about land. The Danites go and they seize a place for their own possession. And there's some irony in that I'll explain as we get there. But they seize a place for their own possession. They say, we want an inheritance. For them, it's about the land. But the narrator tells us, it's not really about the land. It's about the idolatry that they take up 
and that they formalize and institutionalize within the boundaries of the promised land. The tragic, tragic episode in the history of Israel that cannot be overestimated in terms of its long-term effect. So here's the main message of chapter 18. If you don't take anything else, you don't remember anything else, remember this. Unless God's people deliberately, scrupulously, self-consciously follow the word of God, their idolatry and false worship will inevitably separate them from their God and will lead to corruption in their entire lives. I'm going to state this a different way because I want it to be very clear. If we want to state it a different way, self-derived worship, regardless of its intent, regardless of its stated object, self-derived worship will always, every single time, inevitably lead to the worshiper going away from Yahweh, not toward him. That's what we find in chapter 18. Regardless of their stated intentions, regardless of how noble their words might be at certain times, their actions of false worship lead them farther away from Yahweh, inevitably and irrevocably, rather than moving them closer to him. And we can write this down as a law. You know, I currently have a geometry student. You work through theorems, and you work through things that you just know. This is a fact. We know a triangle has three sides, and we can reason from that. Here's a fact we can write down. False worship, regardless of our intended object. I'm really worshiping Yahweh. I'm really worshiping the triune God. But I'm doing it falsely. will take us away from him, not toward him. Every time. That's the key lesson of chapter 18. The anarchy of self-derived worship, or we could apply a different sermon title if you choose, the canonization of corporate worship. Canonization of corporate worship. I'm going to divide this under three headings. One is the anarchy within the priesthood. We're going to kind of reach back a little bit into chapter 17 and tie up a loose end there. We're going to see the anarchy of the priesthood or within the priesthood. We're also going to see the anarchy among the people as a whole. And then, that will lead us, I think inevitably, to see our need of a sinless priestly king. One who is both priest and the king, who can deliver us. Because what we're going to find, chapter 17 and 18, there's not, one, there's not a favorable account of any one person. Not at all. There's not one hero there's not, even with Samson and the other judges, we had some ambiguity. Is this a good guy or not a good guy? Hebrews 11 tells us that it was true faith in the end. We have no such person exhibited to us in chapter 17 and 18. It's only darkness. Accept that. The scriptures don't end here. This isn't the last of God's revelation to his people. And so we we're left with a hope that remains. So let's read together. I'm going to read the entirety Chapter 18, hear now the word of God. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. 
when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it's very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into our hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtiol, and they went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahana-Dan to this day. Behold, it's west of Kiriath-Jerim, and they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in, those ho- in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600, armed, 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image and the ephod and the household gods and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be priest to the house of one man, or is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods, and the carved image, and they went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest... And go away, and what, have I, and what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priests who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire, and there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. 
It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and may he give us help as we work through a, a difficult passage of Scripture. Notice first the, the anarchy within the priesthood. Now, anarchy, you know, just to give you a, a dictionary definition, sometimes it's helpful to be technical with a definition. It's a state of disorder due to absence or non-recognition of authority or other controlling systems. Well, it's a textbook case of anarchy here. We ha- there is no king in Israel. There's no authority. And what authority was there, God's word, they didn't recognize as authoritative. And there's evidence throughout the narrative of anarchy within the priesthood. And this young Levite that we first meet in chapter 17, I want you to see this. He stands as a representative of the entire priesthood of Israel. He stands as a representative, not just of his own private sins and errors, but of the entire Levitical system that God had made that was good and had been so thoroughly corrupted. Now, we've seen this phenomenon already in Judges, where one man stands as a representative of the whole. So, for instance, Samson. We looked at this, where Samson, through various ways, the narrator was careful to show us that Samson really is a type for all of Israel. And in him, we see the faults magnified and and displayed in colorful fashion, but in him we see the faults of all of Israel. Well, in a similar way, we see this young man, a priest. We find out later his name is Jonathan. Jonathan stands as a type for the entire Levitical priesthood. And while we cannot conclude with certainty that every single solitary priest was corrupt, The priesthood as a whole was corrupt. Is that a fair statement? You understand the distinction? I'm not saying that without exception there were no faithful priests. But as a whole, the priesthood was corrupt, and this one man stands as a type, as a representative for the whole. That's that's the intent of the Holy Spirit through the narrator and judges. And through his, we understand that Jonathan's corruption gives us a glimpse into the corruption of the priesthood as a whole. And the fact is confirmed when we look at verses 30 and 31. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So the narrator tells us, this is a big, big deal. This is not an isolated incident. This has a corrupting influence, not only in the whole tribe of Dan, but as the history of Israel proceeds, particularly following the death of Solomon, and Rehoboam, his son, and then Jeroboam takes over as king of the northern ten tribes, this has a devastating influence on the worship of the entire country. The very first thing that Jeroboam does is make golden calves to set up in Dan in the north and Beersheba in the south. So as a matter of of political manipulation, 
he could keep the people of Israel from going up to Jerusalem to give their worship and be swayed back into the household of David. Everyone did, we're told, the very first verse of chapter 18. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this extends not only to the civil leaders of Israel, like, like Samson and the other judges, but also to their spiritual leaders as well. And the weight of evidence in chapters 17 and 18 points us to, to conclude that the evils of self-directed and self-derived worship resulting in idolatry were the chief snare of the people of God. We can, we can look at and enumerate their various sins, and they were manifold, all different kinds of sins, sexual immorality and all kinds of things, but the root of it was their idolatry, their false worship. Now, just very quickly, I'm going to go through this very, very briefly, and you can, you can hopefully, you'll go back and read some of these things on, on your own. But I want to consider some of the evidence regarding the corruption of the priesthood. Sort of tease out a couple of things, a few things here that show us, again, how Jonathan here, representing the whole of the priesthood, demonstrates this corruption. So looking back at chapter 17, here's this young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem. I'm reading in verse 8, chapter 17, in Judah, to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah says to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. Well, the Lord has already assigned him a place. There were 48 cities designated in Israel as Levitical cities. That's where the priests were designed by God to be spread out throughout the promised land to minister to the people, to instruct them in right worship. And already we see a young man who sets out to do his own thing. Even the priests are doing what is right in their own eyes. Then Micah says to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver and a suit of clothes and your living. Now compare this, ten pieces of silver a year. Remember what Micah's mother spent on this carved image? Micah originally stole 1,100 pieces of silver. She spent 200 of it on this 20 years worth of uh, Jonathan's salary went to this one carved image coated with metal. You can see why this was a hot commodity among corrupt human beings. And the Levite was content. We're going to see this phrase a couple of times show up. The Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. We see he's sojourning rather than where Yahweh had established him. He was willing to be hired by an individual. Basically, he shows himself to be a mercenary. He's willing to be hired, whoever would hire him, rather than serving where Yahweh had placed him. And he was content. He was content to abide with an idolater. He was content rather than administering the ordinances under the old covenant that God had given to his people. He's content to preside over a place of household gods and, and graven images. Then we see down in chapter 18, look at verses 3 through 6, 
we, we find this exchange where the Danites, this is a recognized young man's voice. This could be that he had sojourned through uh, their area and they, they actually met him at some point. More than likely, they recognize his accent. They recognize him as from their place in the country. And they recognize his voice. They begin a conversation and they ask him three questions. Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? And what is your business here? Now, what should have been a, a pious Levite's response? I'm where God, where Yahweh has placed me. I'm instructing the people in the things of Yahweh, and I'm carrying out the ordinances of worship that Yahweh has commanded. But that isn't his answer at all. He says, he talks about the things that Micah has done for him. Micah has dealt with me in these ways. He's hired me, and I've become his priest. He provides, then when he's asked by the Danites, inquire of the Lord, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And notice his answer. This is the kind of classic, mealy-mouthed, ambiguous, vague answer that the priesthood became known for. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Now imagine you come to me. We're at lunch and you say, David, I've got this opportunity. Take this new job. It's going to require me to work every Lord's day. It's probably going to require the compromising of my integrity and my moral principles. I'm not going to be able to, to take care of my family as I ought to. What do you think? Should I, should I take it? What you do is before the eyes of the Lord. Oh, good, so you approve. See what he did? It's not an approval at all, and yet the Danites at least pretend, I think they pretend, to take it as approval. So that We'll see in a moment. They can go back and tell their countrymen, God has given us this. God told us. See, he makes no pretense, the priest here makes no pretense of actually inquiring of Yahweh, and yet he claims to speak for him. And then he shamelessly admits that he's been hired by Micah. In chapter 18, verses 17 and 20, we see him when, when the, the army of Danite, 600 armed men come, and we see Jonathan's cowardice as he just stands by. Hey, uh, oh, hey uh, what are you guys doing? We're taking his stuff. Oh, oh, okay. No rebuke. Well, I mean, I mean, who can blame him? 600 armed men, yes, but Elijah stood up against 500 prophets of Baal. Shamgar killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. There are examples of men who showed courage in the face of overwhelming odds, and God honored that. We see nothing like that. We see nothing like that with Jonathan. We also see him participate. He's a willing participant in grand larceny, and now he's a mercenary for sure, because he's out to the highest bidder. Then, of course, in verses 30 and 31, we see him leading the people in false worship and then training the next generation to do the same thing. So the failures of the priesthood are many. I mean, they're more at home in the idolatry and the approval of the world rather than leading the Lord's people in righteousness. They supported the perversion of God's people, and they showed partiality to those who had wealth. They were active participants in false worship rather than courageous teachers of what is revealed by Yahweh in his word as being right and true. There was cowardice in the face of public threat rather than trusting the Lord to have either delivered them or to vindicate them. They were training the next generation to pursue their own interests rather than to pursue Yahweh's commands 
in Yahweh's interests. One commentator makes this insightful statement. He says, instead of calling people to repentance, the professional spiritual leaders capitalize on the the degeneracy of the times. The question the Danites pose to him is asked every day by pastoral search committees. Which is better, to be the pastor of a small family or to be the pastor of a megachurch? The contemporary problem of ambition and opportunism in the ministry has at least a 3,000-year history. The whole point of God establishing an entire tribe, a unique set-apart tribe, to minister his ordinances, was, was to teach, was to protect the right worship of God, to lead the people in the right worship of Yahweh. And yet here in Judges 17 and 18, we find a Levitical priest actively and willingly helping institutionalize false worship. The canonization of the priesthood foreshadows the the, the apostasy that would befall the entire priesthood over the course of Israel's history. The Lord condemns the priests and the prophets. In fact, he speaks, the Lord speaks through the mouth of Jeremiah years later, generations later. And we see this in Jeremiah 2, where the Lord says, Hear the word of Yahweh, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit. And it's good things, but you came and defiled my land. And my inheritance you made an abomination. The priests did not say, where is Yahweh? That's true of Jonathan, isn't it? He doesn't say, where is Yahweh in this? The priests did not say, where is Yahweh? And those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Thus begins the institutionalized perversion of worship in Israel. And it continued all the way through the time of our Lord's coming. And sadly, I don't think I need to spend a whole lot of time persuading you this morning that this same spirit of anarchy is alive and well, do I? I don't think I need to labor on that point. I could certainly spend another full sermon on that or ten sermons on just making that that point, but I don't think I need to. I think we will all stipulate to the fact that the spirit of anarchy within those who lead the people of God in worship continues, doesn't it? That was certainly the case during the Apostle Paul's ministry. It was, it was corrupt religious leaders who, who gave him the most grief, the most hardship. In fact, um, you, you know very well, we can draw a straight line from the Apostle Paul's day to ours. Just go in home and read in Titus chapter 1. Just read the first chapter of Titus where Paul is is warning this young man who he's left at the island of Crete. So this is a corrupt place. There are people who claim to be teachers, but they're corrupt men. And he says they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And he's talking about pastors. Yeah, I don't have to convince you. Sadly, this remains true far too often in, in our day. It's not, it's not those who teach new or foreign religions that do the most damage to the people of God, is it? It's ones who claim to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ and do so perversely, corruptly, and contrary to the word of God, do the most damage. And you may be thinking, well... I'm not a priest, I'm not a pastor, 
I can skip this section. It doesn't really apply to me. Not so fast. What's happening here is God is dealing with those who've been given a place of authority. You bear the office of husband, the office of wife, the office of husband, or the office of father or mother. In whatever capacity God has put you in a place of responsibility, particularly responsibility, where you have a stewardship over the souls of other human beings, then absolutely there is, there is a searching to be done for you as well. To what degree are you, are you exemplifying or, or maybe teaching explicitly those things which are true or those things which are false? Self-derived worship. Regardless of its intent, See, the Danites claim they wanted to worship Yahweh. Jonathan claimed he wanted to lead them to worship Yahweh. So regardless of their intent or the object of their worship, they stated, we're, we're worshiping Yahweh, not, not Baal or anything. We're worshiping Yahweh. But if it's self-derived worship, ignoring the word of God, it will always and inevitably lead the worshiper away from Yahweh and not toward him. Now let's look, we've seen the anarchy among the priesthood, but let's look also at the anarchy among the people. This is, this is not confined to just the top, so to speak. When things go wrong, haven't you noticed that it is often the case that those who are in leadership are usually blamed? And, and often, that's certainly true. I mean, if you look in the world of sports, if, if a game is lost, it's the quarterback's fault. It's the starting pitcher's fault, right? If, if a company goes south, it's the CEO's fault. If things are bad in the political sphere, it's our, it's our leader's fault. And there's often a measure of truth in that, isn't there? We, we certainly see that with respect to the priesthood. But it's not the case where it's all the blame. The Romans 13 ex- explains to us the responsibility that civil leaders have with respect to honoring God and rewarding those who do good and punishing him who doeth evil. Book of James explains that those who desire leadership ought to take tread very carefully, and not everyone should aspire to be a teacher because there is, after all, a stricter judgment. So we have those warnings in the Scriptures. But it is also true that the people who follow ungodly leaders share their guilt. Men and women who submit themselves to those who are teaching contrary to the Word of God do not get a free pass. They also bear responsibility. In fact, Judges 18 illustrates that sometimes it is the people themselves who initiate the ungodly and rebellious behavior, and then their leaders sometimes don't have the integrity or the courage to withstand them or to correct them. Now again, I'm going to go through this fairly briefly, but I want you to notice several features as I point out and, and for those of you who, who are hoping that I will expound every single verse in the text, well, see me at lunch. We can talk about some that I've missed. I can't cover every detail because it's, it's, we'll be here for three more sermons uh, if we do that. But I want to point out some highlights to you and show you how the, the Danites themselves, the, the people, were demanding this false worship. We see in, in verse 1, the second half of verse 1, the people of Dan... Were seeking, was seeking for itself. The tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. 
Now, this is kind of a non sequitur. They were seeking their inheritance. An inheritance is something given to you. You don't go out and find your inheritance. You don't go out, go on a journey, and discover your inheritance. It's given to you. Yahweh had given them a portion of land. The problem was, in the beginning of Judges, we see this back in chapter 1, the problem was there were Amorites in the place that God had given to Dan. They were unable to defeat the Amorites. So they ended up fleeing kind of into the hill country. It wasn't that God had not provided for them. It's that they didn't take what God had given to them and gave up. And now when we, pick, when we, we see at the end when they up in Laish, if you, look at the, if you have a Bible, if you have maps in the back of your Bible, you can look. Laish is all the way at the northern top. It's actually in the land of East Manasseh. It's not anywhere close to the land that God had given to them. They're going out and seeking for themselves. And then in verses 7 and 9, we see that Laish was actually the farthest point north in the promised land. It's a long, long way from Dan's allotted portion. Then in verse 10, when they come back and give their report, the five spies, which does, does that remind you of something? This narration of spies being sent out to survey a land? Well, it's supposed to sound familiar to us, only it's kind of a parody. It's a corruption of Yahweh sending out 12 spies who returned with a good report about the land, but a bad report about the people. Well, there are giants in the land. We can't, we're just not going to be able to take it. These five five spies come back to the land. It's very good, and it's easy pickings. Let's go. But in chapter, verse 10, they tell the people, the land is spacious, for God has given it into our hands. How do they know that? The answer is they don't. They're making that up. They're taking the word of this Levitical priest who's corrupt and doing things he ought not to do, and he just simply says, the eyes of the Lord are on you. And by the way, with, with that one exception, throughout the chapter, the name of God is only in its generic form. It's not the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Now the priest, in responding... The eyes of Yahweh are on you. But everywhere else, it's this sort of generic religion. And the the narrator is intentional about pointing that out to us. That it's just sort of this nebulous, generic kind of God. And we see parallels, of course, in our culture. You can talk about, you know, you can be a politician, you can be an athlete, you can be in the public square and talk about God generically. But as soon as you talk about submitting yourself and asking others to bow the knee, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when trouble starts. You can start, you can talk God all the day long as a concept. But when you put a name to him, and you say people are responsible to obey him, now you've got trouble, right? Then in verse 17, the people of Dan eagerly, deliberately take idols into their possession. And the narrator over and over again repeats this. And you'll notice that he repeats this same phrase. The carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. And he, and he takes that whole list and he repeats the whole list over and over again as if we might say, well, I got it. I understand what they're taking. No, he wants us to know this is really about these false items of worship. That's what the whole narrative is about. Then in verse 19, they capture and end up bribing a Levite to be their priest. And it's kind of humorous. They got 600 armed men 
They show up at Micah's house. The, the priest is kind of left standing there at the entrance of the gate with 600 men. And they, and they ask him, you know, how you doing? Imagine 600 armed men show up here at the door. And they come, how are you doing? You tell us. How are we doing? And, and so there's, there's, there's a, a, an irony and a humor sort of built in here, but we see a priest who's being coerced, and yet, willingly, he's content to go with them. He is eager, in fact, to go along with them. And then in verses 30 and 31, of course, we see the formal institutionalization of the false worship. Both the means of worship, these images which God had forbidden, and the place of worship. God had said, and we looked at this last week in Deuteronomy 13, that God alone says where he was to be worshipped. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 12. This is in direct violation of Deuteronomy 12 regarding the place of worship. And at this time, Shiloh was the place where the ark of God dwelt. That was the place, it was the house of God there. So Dan now is formally, institutionally, a direct rival to the true worship of Yahweh at Shiloh. And that would perpetuate all the way through the history of Israel. It's also in direct violation of the second commandment. And Deuteronomy 27, which explicitly forbids these graven images. And even to worship the true God through a false means was forbidden. So here go the people of Dan establishing worship according to their own desires, their own convenience, and according to their own self-derived priorities. Now we have to ask ourselves, how big a deal was this? Well, it's a capital offense, literally. Deuteronomy 13. Yahweh says through Moses, if your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known, of the gods of the peoples who are around you, near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, you shall not be willing to accept him or listen to him, and your eyes shall not pity him, and you shall not spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your own hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he has sought to drive you from Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Thus all Israel will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing. How serious was this? God said, even the wife of your bosom, even your own brother, your own son or daughter, they come to you secretly and say, let's worship God falsely. Your own hand should be the first one to strike them. How serious this was. The Danites stand as a tragic example of this self-derived worship, and especially this self-derived worship becoming willfully intentional institutionalized by the deeds of these very ordinary Israelites. False worship is established formally in Israel for the very first time, and it remains there for generations. The corruption takes a deep root. It stays there, 
Even in the very end, when the narrator identifies the Levite by name, we're reminded just how deep and wide the canonization of Israel has become. Daniel Bach, in his commentary, says, Previously, the narrator was intentionally, has intentionally referred to this young man generically as a Levite. So the reader would generalize the present symptoms of spiritual canonization to the priestly class or tribe as a whole. To concretize the issue, he shocks the reader by associating the abominations committed in this chapter with Moses, the most venerable character in Israelite history. The problem of religious syncretism is so deeply rooted it has infected the most sacred institutions and the most revered households. No one can escape this kind of corruption. Now, we don't know the, the word, the Hebrew word that's translated as a son of, of Moses or grandson of Moses could mean generically a descendant of Moses. I think it's probably more literally the grandson of Moses, which is why I think this happens early in the narrative. Moses' own grandson. Can you imagine? Who was a Levite by birth. Moses was a Levite. We're supposed to establish the godly priesthood. And already, this is how quickly the idolatry sets in. Very grandson of Moses. Again, I can't be certain about that. Commenters can't be certain, but, but it's likely, I think. Now, once again, how much work do I need to do to persuade you that false worship and false teaching is not to be exclusively charged to those who are in leadership? I mean, do I really have to do a lot of work to show you, to demonstrate for you that every man, in a sense, is crying out for false worship. And again, once, once again, apostolic testimony bears this out, doesn't it? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, in his, in his last will and testament, his dying words, he's pleading with Timothy, he's urging Timothy, he's admonishing Timothy, he says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. And do you think when that happens that there will be mercenaries who come along and say, I'll be happy to accommodate you? If the price is right, I'll be more than happy to scratch those itching ears for you. Beloved, I'm convinced that chapters 17 and 18 of Judges are written to us as mirrors to show us the peril, harm of false worship. Not only of worshiping false gods, but worshiping the true God falsely. And the scriptures condemn both. And I don't want us to walk out of here today the way that we, we all do when we've gone to see a movie. You know, you've seen the movie, it's great, and then the credits start to roll, the lights kind of gradually come back on, and you stand up and you kind of stretch and grab your popcorn bucket and make sure you haven't left your phone and your purse and all those kinds of things, and you walk out and you might talk about some of your favorite characters or the, the plot or something you didn't like, or, but you don't really look for yourself in that movie. Let's don't look at Judges 17 and 18 like moviegoers. Or we don't consider, where, where, is, this, where is this showing my, me myself? Look at yourself here. In what ways have you sought to establish worship according to your own desires? In what ways have you sought to worship the triune God according to what best fits your own schedule, your own perceived needs, your own expectations, your family's particular challenges, or your own preferences? What ways have you strayed from the immovable word of God with respect to worship? And do you recognize here, 
by the authority of the scriptures that the consequences are tragic and enduring if we forsake these things. And the scriptures often refer to the idolatry of Dan as representative of God's people seeking their own way and finding themselves far from God instead. And and I sought last week to make the argument that self-derived worship is always self-deceiving worship also. And if 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 you had interviewed an average Danite, you know, they've they've gone, they've, they've conquered Laish, they've rebuilt it, they've named it Dan, and you'd Go on an interview, sit down at dinner with an average day, and I said, how are things going? Oh, man, God is blessing us, you wouldn't believe. Look at all that God has given to us. Look at how God has prospered us. Look at all the success we're having. Surely this is the work of of Yahweh. And yet they were actively, willfully, persistently disobeying the clear word of God and claiming God's blessing. You see the deception? And, And we can deduce from Judges 17 and 18, that the pursuit of worship on our own terms always, inevitably, takes us farther from God, not closer to Him. That's a deduction, and that's my main point in the text. But the prophet Amos makes that deduction explicit. Listen to what he says. This is in Amos chapter 8 and verse 11. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of Yahweh. I don't know there's, there's more frightening language in all of the Bible. than He goes on, people will wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the choice men will faint from thirst. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. He's making an explicit reference. They will go all the way to the north and even to the east, and they will not find the true word of God. Because Dan has forsaken it. And the effects are enduring. The lesson of Judges 17 and 18 is is true for us as well, isn't it? Regardless of our intent, regardless of our stated object of worship, self-derived worship always and inevitably leads us farther away from God, not nearer. Now, this leads us, if we just closed here, isn't that pretty depressing? Pretty dark, isn't it? And yet, what, what the testimony of the Scriptures as a whole give to us, the Bible doesn't close at the end of Judges chapter 8. We've seen that there's an anarchy here. There is no king in Israel. The narrator's identified for us the problem, but he's not proposing the, the solution then must be an earthly monarch that will keep these people in line. If that were true, then we wouldn't have someone like Jeroboam or even Solomon, his son Rehoboam, and the kingdom is divided under the reign of Rehoboam, and all the kings that would follow. If it were an earthly king, merely an earthly king that's a solution, wouldn't have that have fixed it? But of course we know that's not the problem. If anarchy is a state of disorder due to absence or non-recognition of authority or other controlling systems, then by definition, what is the antidote to anarchy? Authority. Rightful authority. Just authority the recognition of that proper authority, if we see ourselves at all 
in, in the first two points, the anarchy of the, the priesthood, the anarchy of the people, if we see ourselves at all there, then what we need, what we need most of all, is the only remedy, the only antidote to our anarchy. We need a Savior. We need a particular kind of Savior. We need one who is both a priest and a king. You see, that's what Judges 17 and 18 leave us with, is a need for someone who is both priest and king. And the Apostle of the Hebrews writes about just such a priesthood. In fact, the Apostle of the Hebrews spends several chapters, you go home and read this, chapters 5 through 8 and even parts of 9, really unpack this for us and show us this is what Christ has brought to his people. The Apostle speaks of the priesthood of a man named Melchizedek. And, and some of his reasoning is, I mean, he gets into deep water, and he even says, at the end of chapter 5, you know, there's a lot that we want to say about this, but you've become dull, you're not listening very well, you've not been disciplined, so some of this we, we're having a hard time explaining to you. But then he goes on to explain it. And he, and he points out the fact that this man, Melchizedek, he was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. In fact, even Abraham offers tithes to him, showing that he was superior even to Father Abraham. And he explains that his name means, literally, the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And he was also high priest. But he was not of the order of the Levites. He was of a different order, an order that had no beginning. And he says that none other than Jesus Christ is both king and priest after this same order of Melchizedek. Listen to what he says about Jesus. This is in Hebrews 7, verse 15. Another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and he quotes here Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This means, thanks, our Messiah is both perfect priest and perfect king. He is perfect priest and faithful king of righteousness, king of peace. The apostle continues as he's making his argument here. This is a little further down in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 26. He says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later in the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, this is exactly what we need, is, a man, is one who is generally a man who could come as priest but also his sinless, perfect, spotless Lamb of God and King of peace and King of righteousness. We need a God-man, a priestly king, a kingly priest. We need one who takes away our sin, doesn't merely cover it up or temporarily cleanses it. We need one who takes the sin away. Saints, may you be encouraged. When you think about the, the, the judges, and whether it's Samson or Jephthah or Gideon or any of the Danites or Israel as a whole, do you realize God foretold all of their rebellion? You read the book of Deuteronomy. God, everything that they've done, God said they would do it. He said, don't take 
foreign wives for yourselves. But when you do, this is what's going to happen. Don't, you need to go and tear down the altars of all the peoples around you. But when you don't, this is what's going to happen. He foretold all of that. He told of their, their idolatry, their total canonization. Why, why is this encouraging? Why should that encourage our souls that God had foretold all of their sin, all of their rebellion, and all of their idolatry? Why is that encouraging? Because God was not surprised by their sin and folly. God was not caught off guard. He was not caught unawares. He is not surprised by their sin, and he is not surprised by yours. He is not surprised by the rebellion that remains within you. He is not surprised by the folly that remains. He is not surprised or caught off guard by the idolatry that still captures your heart at times. He is not faced with the sudden challenge of having now provided for your reconciliation to him, but now he somehow, unexpectedly, he's going to have to scramble around and figure out a way to keep you secure to him. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. If you're in Christ, God is, is not scrambling somehow to hold his plan of salvation together. He's not, he's not trying to, to figure out a way to stay ahead of you, to catch up to your sin, to catch up to your folly or mine. Your sloth and your duty and your devotion is not going to unravel his eternal plan to rescue you and preserve you. Now, I don't say this to encourage sin or condone sloth in your duties. You know that. And Paul, Paul urged the people of God. You read, you read his epistle to the Romans. He urged the doctrine of free grace so strenuously. He emphasized the unmerited, un, undeserved grace of God being lavished upon his people. He, he, he taught that to such a degree that he knew he was opening himself to, up to the charge of being lawless. He was opening himself up to the charge because of his doctrine of free grace saying, you're encouraging people to sin. So he anticipates that. He begins the sixth chapter of Romans with, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul didn't condone sin. He wasn't promoting sin. He wasn't teaching a, a sloth in religious duty. But he did teach the gospel very plainly. Saints, hear this. If you are in Christ, there is now, therefore, at this very moment, no condemnation for you. Not because you've rid yourself of the sin. Not because you've rid yourself of the folly. Not because you've rid yourself of your idolatry. Not because you've rid yourself of your rebellion. But because Christ has died for you, and that's enough. His death is sufficient. He's cleansed you from all the condemnation due to you for sin. And more than that, by faith, you have been credited his entire perfect ledger of righteousness. Think about this. This has always struck me. I don't remember, I, I meant to look this up, and I don't, I, I, it escaped my memory when I wrote it down, but after Peter's betrayal, we all know that the Lord had, had foretold Peter's rebellion. Before the rooster crows, three times, you're going... You're going to, or before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And of course, Peter, not we, nope, nope, these other jokers, maybe, but I will not. Sure enough, cock a doodle do. Three times he's betrayed his Lord. 
One of the gospel writers records that as Peter leaves the courtyard, he catches Christ's eye. What was that like? What do you think it was like? What do you think if Christ would look upon you right now? Or earlier this week when the besetting sin caught you again? And you lost it and your sharp tongue got the better. You set your eyes on things that should not have been all. When the corruption of your heart revealed itself again, what do you think Christ, what do you think the look on his face would be when he looks at you? It's love, affection, it's tenderness, it's all great. Because he has loved you before the worlds were. He's paid your debt. And he's promised, saints, one day to rid you completely of your idolatry. To rid you completely of the stubbornness, the rebellion, the sinfulness that remains today. The grace of the gospel. Do you know this priest king? Do you know the one that the Hebrew writer talks about? The one who has delivered us and pardoned us? And he expands his priesthood argument even further here in Hebrews 9. He says, therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. As you look into the mirror of Judges 17 and 18, do you see your own transgressions under the first covenant? There's a death that's occurred that's redeemed you from it. Pardoned your guilt. Cleansed you. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Listen to this. Listen to this. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. That's good news, isn't it? That's the news that, that all the events that we're reading about point us to. There's a priestly king, a kingly priest who's coming, and he has come. He's the one who was perfect man, who could come and enter in and live as a priest, live among the people in perfection. All the things that Jonathan wasn't even close to doing. All the things that Moses didn't do. All the things that David, Solomon, and all those who would come after them, none of them did. Is your sin covered by this priest of peace? Is your life governed, ruled? by the King of Righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your enduring mercy with us. Thank you for your patience. Holy Spirit, will you search us? Show us where there is wickedness that remains. Enable us, by the power of your Spirit, motivated by by gratitude for the grace that we have received, help us pursue righteousness. Flee from temptation. Fix our eyes upon Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We ask this in his holy name.